Okay. All right, as this is booting up, let me uh, welcome you, and I hear that we are on loud and clear, so that's good. Uh, Last night, we had a a little memory lapse about Jonah, and so I've, a group of us decided last night what it was, and so let me catch you back up on that. Uh, Jonah has four chapters, and it can easily be divided into four main topics, and uh, it's an old, old sermon that many of you have heard before. Chapter 1 is Jonah running away from God. Chapter 2 is Jonah running toward God. Chapter 3 is Jonah running with God. And then chapter 4 is Jonah running ahead of God. Bob, how'd I do? (laughs) But uh, we didn't use that, but uh, I did make reference to that. And if you remember that, that part of Jonah, that will help out. Tremendously, We are studying Moses uh, tonight, and so let me encourage you as you get the handouts to follow along with us. And if you would, open your Bibles to Numbers chapter 11, because we will be looking at that uh, chapter in detail in our study, looking at some of the points associated with that uh, event in Moses' life. We're using the the four main characters that are in the overall curriculum for VBS. Last night we looked at Jonah. Tonight we're looking at Moses. Tomorrow night we'll look at Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, and then we'll close out looking at Naaman. And as I looked at these three trying to find a theme that we could use that would help us to put in perspective, all these lessons, the the theme I came up with was that of God. And so last night we talked about the commanding God. Jonah is more of a story about God than it is about the big fish. And in our lesson tonight, we're going to talk about the God that helps you survive. And we see that by turning to that one chapter in the book of Numbers, Numbers chapter 11, a a number of points are found in that chapter that we'll uh, be focusing on and drawing lessons from in our class tonight. But as we talk about Moses, it's important for us to understand some basic facts about Moses. Probably most of us in the, the assembly tonight would be able to give a pretty good explanation about who Moses was, what he did, the impact that he had. But just to give you uh, a summary, here are some of the main points. Jonah, uh, I mean Moses, is one of the greatest personalities in the Bible. In fact, you'll find from the very beginning of his existence, Moses plays a dominant part in the role of Judaism and then in Christianity as well. So he was a a very dominant personality. Jonah, uh, Moses had a position in Scripture that's unquestioned. Uh, Moses is held up uh, as really the equivalent of Scripture. Uh, He is seen as a parallel, and that's because he's known as the lawgiver, Uh, We speak about the law of Moses. Most people would identify the law of Moses with the Ten Commandments. 
But that was just a small part of the law that Moses gave to us. Moses, as a, a name, is a figure of speech, synecdoche, uh, where the part stands for the whole. And so whenever you talk about Moses or you mention Moses, that part stands for the entirety of the Old Testament. And so there is a dispensation that is named for him, Mosaic Dispensation. And you remember that in the, uh, the, the scope of civilization, man dealing with civilization, you have the patriarchal age, the Mosaic age, and then the Christian age. Well, Moses was the one that was responsible uh, for the, the Mosaic dispensation. This was the period of time where God governed and guided mankind through the law that was uh, delivered through Moses. Another interesting thing about Moses is that he is equal to the prophets. You remember the story of the rich man and Lazarus? Uh, and the rich man was told, well, they, he they has Moses and the prophets. Let them read them as he's uh, pleading for his brother's security. And then Luke 24, 44, Jesus himself puts Moses and the prophets together as speaking about him. The Mount of Transfigurations, one of the wonderful stories that you study about in the Bible. And in that critical point, you have Moses there with Christ uh, as he stood with Elijah. And there you have the, the preeminence of Christ. Christ is greater than the law of Moses or any of the writings of the prophets. An interesting thing about Moses is found in Acts 6 and verse 11. There in, in uh, the accusations that's leveled against Stephen, uh, you have in that sermon where uh, Moses was placed on equality with God himself. That's, that's how revered the Jews saw Moses. The Hebrew epistle fantastic writing because you have to understand the complexities and the sacrifices of the Old Testament to grasp the argument of the Hebrew writer. Well, in the Hebrew epistles, uh, Moses is used there to express faithfulness and devotion to God. In fact, in Hebrews 8 and verse 5, Moses' character is used to illustrate obedience and he, there the Bible says, See that you make all things according to the pattern which was shown you on the mountain. And he did that. So Moses is also in, in Hebrews, face hall of fame. He is a memorable personality in the characters listed there in Hebrews chapter 11. So Moses is a prominent, a dominant character in the, the Bible. Well, Moses, as great as he is in the Scripture, and as heroic as we would want to give him the esteem for his duties, uh, Moses was an individual just as you and I, and he struggled. And in the, the lesson tonight, what we're going to do is, is look at what I call a slice of the 40 years uh, that Israel wandered about, in the, and one day out of those 40 years, uh, they struggled 40 years in the wilderness. There was Moses with them, 
every step of the way, and here is one day. And as we look through this one day, you have to shake your head and feel sorry for Moses because he is with them thousands of other days, and the situation really didn't improve that much. But here is one segment, one slice that offers a lesson about our great God. And as I read through the Bible each year, I always come to Numbers, and I love the book of Numbers. A lot of folks don't, and you've got the struggles there with all the genealogies and, and the names, but there are some tremendous stories in the book of Numbers. And here, Numbers 11 is one of my favorite chapters in the book of Numbers because of the lesson that we find in it. This was in a period that we identify as the wilderness wanderings. The wilderness wanderings is a general category of those 40 years that Israel spent. Abraham's descendants has grown now, and they have reached the point of population from 3 to 5 million people. And they have endured generations of slavery in Egypt. You'll remember the story. God called Moses from the burning bush to go and to deliver Israel from Egyptian slavery. And under the leadership of Moses, the people leave Egypt and they move on toward the promised land. As difficult as Moses thought he had it appearing before Pharaoh and his courts and his magicians, uh, he didn't know anything yet. As they moved out of Egypt into the, uh, uh, the area before the Red Sea or crossing the Red Sea, all of that seemed problematic, but Moses was about to encounter much more. It should have been just a short journey from Egypt to the Promised Land, and in fact, it, it was a relatively short journey given the the modes of transportation, and the mass of people that were being moved in, in this migration. But what happened was that this relatively brief period of time lasted 40 years because these folks had sin and pride, and they had a stubborn refusal to follow God. We saw last night, and each lesson just kind of builds on itself, but we saw last night how a stubborn refusal to obey God brings nothing but trouble and chaos and, and confusion into your life. Well, Israel in the wilderness wanderings illustrates this very well. For 40 years, uh, they did that. And there's uh, the study of, of types and shadows in the Bible, um, an amazing study. Uh, but in the wilderness wanderings, you have a number of types that were given to us uh, to uh, teach us truths that we need to have and understand in the New Testament. But there's one constant lesson that we find throughout the wilderness wanderings, and that is God is faithful. God can be trusted. God will provide for our basic needs. Philippians 4.19, Paul says, My God will supply all of your needs according to His riches and glory in Christ Jesus. Now think about that for a moment. My God shall supply all of your needs. Not all of your wants. We're going to see where Israel didn't understand that here in Numbers 11. They thought that God would just give them whatever they ordered. And so... 
They expected God to fulfill not only their needs, but also their wants. I'm afraid that many have not progressed much further than Israel at that point. But Philippians 4.19, my God will most definitely, absolutely supply all of your needs according to his riches in Christ Jesus. And as we look at, at the wilderness wanderings, we see that it's a great type because what has happened in the typology, Israel has left Egyptian bondage, slavery. They've been freed from that. And now they're going toward the promised land. Now that's a type of our salvation. We've been freed from sin, slavery. Romans 6, you were once a slave to sin. But now we are in submission to God. Well, what happens in that in-between period? Here we are at the point of salvation when we obey the gospel. Here we are at the judgment where we enter into our eternal reward in heaven with God. What about the in-between? That's where Israel was here in Numbers chapter 11. They had left slavery. They're marching to the promised land. And here they are, smack dab in the middle. And that's where we are as well. So as we, we look at this in-between period, we see that uh, we've got to be faithful. Uh, and as we look at the teachings of the Old Testament in regard to the wilderness wanderings, there's always the encouragement to be faithful. There are those personalities that are involved. There are the commands that are given. It all points to that simple fact, be faithful while you are in that in-between period. While you are, are struggling to get from this point of salvation to that point of eternal salvation in Christ. And it's always challenging. In the wilderness wanderings, Israel was challenged repeatedly. All kinds of problems, all kinds of challenges faced them, and they had to understand that they must remain faithful to God. But here's an interesting point. In the wilderness wanderings, their faith grew because you look at the nation that crosses the Jordan River eventually and compare that to that nation that left Egypt, and it's totally different. There is that constant changing, that constant renovation that takes place. And again, that reminds me of a point that Paul makes in the Colossian letter. He says, we are being renewed, and that means we're being renovated. We're being changed in this in-between period, and Israel was. It's a great place for faith to grow and most importantly, it's a journey of trust, as we'll see in the lesson tonight. Well, real quick, we look at, at a simple question. How do I survive? How do I get from this point to that point? And how do I survive in, in a confused environment with uncertainty and fear and perplexity that's always bombarding me? How do I do that? There's been a number of literary works that have addressed the confused environment in which we live. Uh, yesterday, our, our grandkids found The Wizard of Oz somewhere on TV. <laughs> Don't even, I remember when it used to come on once a year, remember that? And it was every year at that particular time. It's always on Sunday night, if I remember, and it's after church services. But they found The Wizard of Oz. 
Well, Dorothy, in the confused state which she was in, she got to Oz through a tornado. You remember Alice in Wonderland? Well, she slipped down a rabbit hole to the world of confusion and chaos. And Lucy in Narnia uh, went in through the, the wardrobe. Well, how do you survive? Do you just read the literary works that try to, uh, to feed you some kind of answer or give you some explanation from, from mortality? Well, that's not going to work. How do you explain what to do when you find yourself in an unlikely place on your spiritual journey? You didn't intend to be there. This isn't how you planned it. What are you going to do when suddenly you're surprised with what goes on in the wilderness wanderings? The wilderness can be deceiving as Oz, quirky, quirky as Wonderland, and as transformational as Narnia, but uh, what do we do? How do we survive? And we're often unsure as to what to do or to think, and the wilderness makes you feel that you're all alone. Spiritually speaking, in the wilderness, you feel that God has deserted you. I don't know if you've ever felt that as you've struggled through some incidents or in, in, in life or some situations. Uh, you feel that, that God's just deserted you. Well, there are some that feel that. If you haven't, I'm, I'm glad for you. But most people often think, you know, that they, they just... Uh, they're just unable to cope because they don't have God. Tomorrow night we'll talk about this more, but you remember the man that came uh, to Christ, his daughter was sick, and he says, I believe, but he says, help. Help my unbelief. That's where we are in the wilderness wonderings a lot of times. It's not that we don't believe God, but we're, we're doing everything we can just to hang on to, to what's going on. And how, what do we do at this particular point in time? And so how do we survive the perplexities and the heartbreak of the wilderness? Life is not easy. Uh, Job says, man born of woman, short-lived. His life is full of troubles. Well, that's where we are in the wilderness wanderings. And so if you, if you feel like that, then uh, you need to understand that you're in the wilderness. And there's a number of ways to get in the wilderness. Uh, real quick, I'll just list two ways that are often uh, seen. is through a crisis. Something really traumatic happens to you, knocks you flat on your back, or an interesting contrast is that it's a spiritual victory. Uh, Elijah in the Mount Carmel uh, confrontation was victorious. But read the next chapter. He's all alone, and he's running for his life. He's in the wilderness as well. Well, have you ever experienced a wilderness, a wilderness where you felt defeated by God? And, and a number of years ago, uh, I asked a, a group, I said, just write down some things that put you in the wilderness. And here are some of these, and you probably uh, can add to this or identify with them. First of all, a financial circumstance is just burdening you. And within the last few years, uh, many have felt that with the 
uh, economic problems that we've suffered, and, and that is dire straits. Uh, waiting for an adoption to be finalized are those that have just graduated. What do they do? Where do they go? There's, there's perplexity there. Uh, it's interesting. Jennifer and I still own a house in Searcy if anybody wants to buy one. But, uh, you know, uh, this was several years ago when the housing market was really down throughout the nation. And, and several said, you know, attempting to sell a house that's just strangling us. Or what about an illness that won't go away? You know, I don't know if you've ever said, and, and the, the physicians come out either after surgery or after a diagnostic test, and, and you know from the moment that the, the doctor walks in that it's bad news. How do you deal with that? How do you cope with that? Or, or some are diagnosed with a disease that is lingering and, it, and there's just no answer to it. And every day they're living with it and uh, uh, they are struggling in the wilderness. A family member who's rebelling, a dream that's turned into a disappointment, things just didn't turn out. This is what I'm talking about, the wilderness wonderings where we are. How do we deal with those things? Yes, we believe in God, and yes, yes, we, we're not going to leave God. Boy, it sure is hard to understand and accept this. So we look here in the character of Moses in Numbers chapter 11, and we're going to see that the desert experiences, the wilderness experiences, will provide a powerful opportunities for our faith to grow. And let me, let me just give you a footnote right here to apply all the way through but a footnote here, understand what Paul said, when I am weak, then I am strong. Remember, Paul said, I've prayed and I've prayed and I've prayed. I've asked God to remove this. And if you would think that anybody had a, a connection with God that would, would give prayers priority, I would think it would be the apostle. And yet Paul said, his prayer wasn't answered the way that he thought that it should. Remember, he wrote to the Philippians, My God will supply every need of yours. And you recall the response that Paul heard from God? The answer was, No, the thorn won't be taken, but my grace is sufficient for you. And many times in the wilderness periods that you've come through, your faith at the end is greater than it was at the very beginning. And that's a point that we need to understand and remember because it's very, very critical. In our journey of faith, we will, and here are three absolutes, we will find ourselves in the wilderness, we, our faith will become weak, and we will feel hopeless, helpless, abandoned, and despairing. Get ready for it. If you haven't already under, uh, felt that and experienced that, then get ready because it's going, to, it's going to happen. And as you do, there are questions that's going to arise. The question is not, why am I in the wilderness? And it is not, how did I get here? The question is, how am I going to survive the wilderness? There are many things that are done and can't be undone. You can't rewind. You can't redo. 
Jonah had the opportunity, and sometimes we do too, to redo. So he went to Nineveh in chapter 3. Sometimes we don't get to redo. We're in the wilderness, and we have the consequences of the choices that put us there. And so the, the question is, how am I going to survive this with the grace and the mercy of God? And that's a, a very critical point whenever it comes to our lives. So let's look at some survival skills. And if I think in your notes, you'll see that there are three. Number one, <laughs> my kids were, the grandkids were eating, and they saw the handouts. And uh, they said, you're going to tell him not to whine. He's got, it's really down here. Don't whine. <laughs> uh, they hear that often, I think. But anyway, that's God telling us, don't whine. Look, if you will, in, in Numbers chapter 11, verses 4 through 6, there is, as uh, Moses is dealing with these people, the Bible says, The rabble which were among them had greedy desires, and also the sons of Israel wept again and said, Who will give us meat to eat? We remember the fish which we used to eat free in Egypt, cucumbers, melons, leeks, onions, garlic, and now appetite is gone. There is nothing at all to look at except this manna. Underscore manna. Do you remember what manna was? You know, it was given by God. Do you remember why? It was because Israel had grumbled and complained and griped. They didn't have anything to eat. So in Exodus chapter 16, manna was provided, and there in verse 31, manna is described for us. It's delicious. It was like coriander seed, white, and its taste was like wafers with what? Honey. It was like wafers of honey, and they had this in abundance. They had it more than they could eat. God had taken care of their needs. And God had provided this for them every day. He gave it to them for breakfast and for lunch and for supper, day after day. Now, that ought to tell you something about complaining. Look at what happens as, as you see that. The people who once complained about not having anything to eat now complained about having something to eat. Have you ever realized you can't appease a complainer? There's no way. There's always going to be those that murmur and grumble and gripe and complain. And the more you pay attention trying to appease them, the worse the situation is going to get. We'll come to that in just a moment. But now they, they said, we don't want it anymore. We don't want this. We're tired of it. We're sick of it. And, and they said, we remember how it was in Egypt. And did you look at what they said there in verse 5? We remember the fish which we used to eat free. <laughs> isn't, that, isn't that an interesting insight to them? This was free food for us. We had free food in Egypt. And they just went, uh, continued their, their complaining and their griping. They exercised what one individual has called selective historical recreation. 
Now, what that basically means is you remember what you want to remember, and then as you retell the story, you really highlight the things that prove your point the best. And so they said, we always had the best things in Egypt, and this was free food for us. They seemed to have forgotten something, didn't they, in their revisionist efforts to uh, record their history. They had forgotten that there's nothing free, and especially it was not free to them in Egypt. And they were complaining now that God was mistreating them and that the Egyptians had treated them better than God. Isn't that amazing? These are the folks that Moses had to put up with 40 years. Feel sorry for Moses. He, he deserves it. Well, the, the minute that things get a little uncomfortable, a troubling pattern emerges today because we whine if it's not if it's not comfortable if it's not convenient then we begin practicing the historic recreation narrative again well things used to be a whole lot better Uh, you used to do things much different than what you did then Uh, history mankind really doesn't change very much at all going through the the wilderness has many drawbacks, but here's one of them. It, it causes people to imagine things that are not real. And, and they become deluded in their own minds, and in that they begin to, to poison those that are with them. Uh, they have what I call a wishful delusion. Complaining never solves the problem. I know we've got the expression, the squeaky wheel gets the grease, uh, but that's not true whenever it comes to the Lord's body. Complaining never changes, never, never accomplishes anything. In fact, the Bible is very specific in the steps to take to avoid that kind of behavior and to make sure that we're following it in the way that we should. Well, the problem with complaining is that it magnifies misery. It just makes them more misery because they lost sight of their blessing. Do you remember how they left Egypt? They left Egypt singing. They left Egypt full of joy. They were going to the promised land. And now look at what they are. They lost contact with reality. They were irrational. We had it better in Egypt. We had free food. And look how good things were in Egypt. They lost contact with reality. They forgot that the meal of their cucumbers, garlic, and melons came with a price tag of human slavery. And that they did not want to endure. They lost their thankfulness for everything that God had given them in the middle of the desert, in the wilderness wandering amazing thing. God had, had shown them his power in the, uh, the plagues in Egypt, the parting of the Red Sea, the thundering of Mount Sinai, the, all of the miracles that had followed them. God had shown them his greatness, and yet here in the middle of the wilderness, <clears throat> they forget him, and they forget all the good that he has done. And they began to conceive of God in all the wrong ways. 
No longer is he their protector and their provider, but now he's worse than what the Egyptians were to them. And most importantly, their whining didn't change their situation. Well, you look at this and you begin to make the application to the, the Christians today as they're in the wilderness. And I hope the application is very clear. There are going to be things that pop up and things that are wrong, but if you waste your time whining, it's only going to uh, magnify the misery that you find. Look at this interesting point. Why is whining so bad? Well, it, it's, it starts a downward spiral into uh, a person's life where ultimately, and, and if it's not corrected within a congregation, ultimately there's a system shutdown. Uh, I was reading one time, and a fellow likened this to, to drinking uh, salt water. And uh, what happened, uh, the fellow, and I'm, I'm using his illustration here, but he said, you're lost at sea, you're floating along desperate with, with thirst, you're surrounded by liquid. Oh, it's so tempting to take just a taste to swish it around in your mouth and spit it out. But what happens, he said, if you succumb to your temptation, and then he lists this. He said, ocean water is about three times as salty as your blood, so if you drink it, metabolism will shift into a crisis mode. Water will flow out of every cell in a vain effort to dilute the salt, cleanse the body of it. The cell needs water, and this outward flood leaves them dangerously dehydrated. The problem is that the blood cells are dangerously overworked in their effort to carry the excess water and salt down and out the kidneys. Drinking salt water can rapidly result in seizures, unconsciousness, even brain damage. The overwhelmed kidneys will simply shut down, causing death. Now, use that physiological illustration to what we're talking about here. Here you have the introduction into a congregation or into a person's life, and it's dangerous. And what it causes is an overload of energy and activity because they want to deal with the complainers. They want to deal with the criticism and with the whiners. And so what happens is that all energy begins to be focused on that, and as all energy is focused on that, the energy that's required to do everything else is depleted. And so what you have then is a system that is operating on emergency power, and it can't operate like that very long. And so what happens is that the body, spiritual body, will have a system shutdown because all the energy, all the efforts that should be directing to help the body be healthy and is now directed to that which is negative and complaining. That's why the Bible teaches us that, you know, you need to confront the whiners and the complainers, and if they won't, won't do what's right, they need to be taken care of. Cut it off is what 1 Corinthians 5 is telling us, and the reason why, for the health of the body. Well, much more could be said about that. Uh, if you've ever seen a gangrenous uh, limb on a person, and, and they didn't want, uh, we had a friend in, in Kentucky, they didn't want to amputate, started in his big toe, and they didn't want to amputate. They thought that, that they could solve it. 
Well, they waited and they waited. It didn't heal up. They gave him all kinds of oxygen treatment. So they finally amputated the big toe. But the problem is the poison had spread. And they kept chopping away at that leg until ultimately he lost it all the way to the hip. And ultimately he died because of it. Well, gangrene can happen in the spiritual body as well. And it, that infection begins, as we see it here, in the whining and the complaining. A total system shutdown takes place. Uh, and the reason why is because it focuses only on the negative and it only leads to despair and hopelessness, then to giving up and total failure. And we see this later on over in Numbers chapter 14, verses 2 and 3, because there the complainers weren't stopped in chapter 11. They weren't stopped there. So in chapter 14, they had so uh, uh, marginalized the people in the faith that they had uh, that the people said, we should never have left Egypt. We should have died there. Well, these people, the the whining and the complaining uh, eventually escalates into despair. They'd been promised a home, but look at this. They, they wanted their slavery back. Well, Christians today should never whine. There's, well, we don't have enough time. <laughs> but uh, here's three passages, and, and you've got them in your notes there. Uh, unwholesome speech in Ephesians 4 comes from a Greek term that means rotten. It's good for nothing. Don't interject that into anything he says. James 5 says the judge is standing at the door. He's listening to what you're saying. Uh, so let's understand. And you can get a concordance or a topical Bible and, and consider more on that. But here's a warning. Satan's going to tempt you in the wilderness to cause you to slip into complaining and murmuring and grumbling Ever so slightly and subtly, he'll draw you into that. And even though you may think you're justified in that complaining, you've got to be careful. It could be a complaint that, oh boy, my, my back hurts, my knee hurts. I've got hurt, constant complaining uh, about And it may be just, I've got back hurts and I've got knee hurts and you do too. You know, you just don't get up as quick as you used to. Last trip to Ukraine, <laughs> visited an orphanage. They had a ping pong table, and they wanted me to play ping pong with them. You know how long it's been since I've played ping pong? Probably about 50 years. <laughs> and I, I swatted at it a couple of times. Just didn't work. Well, all of us will have those kind of problems. You could complain about aging parents. You can complain about kids that are not cooperating. You can complain about a spouse you want to shape up. You could complain about a job. You can complain about having no work, complain about having too much. You can complain, but that puts you right here in Numbers 11 in the wilderness. And what happens is you're being manipulated by the devil in this. Complaining is, is so childish, and we see it here. Uh, the, the, uh, the childishness of complaints are identified here. And, and I've got a couple of sermons there in, in verse 5. They love the onions and garlic better than they love the wafers of honey. Now, do you want to be around folks like that? Well, that's what Moses was dealing with here. The survival tip, 
stop the whining. If you're going to get from the point of conversion and salvation to the point of eternal redemption and security with God in heaven, don't complain, don't whine, and the Bible tells us that. Uh, here again, Isaiah 64 and verse 4 and, and Ephesians chapter 4. Number two, as you're in the wilderness, you need to get help. And, and I'll forego reading those scriptures there, verses 10 through 15. But at this particular time, Moses has a meltdown. And, and the meltdown is because he's weary, he's overwhelmed. The people are constantly around him. Remember, these are the onion and garlic folks and not the honey-tongued folks. These are the ones that really want to cause him grief. And he feels all alone. He feels used up. He feels totally uh, uh, mistreated. Uh, he is faced with ingratitude. Uh, he's probably remembering at this point, God, I didn't even want this job. You know, he tried to explain to God why he couldn't go, and God wouldn't let him. But Moses didn't even want to go, and now there he is. Well, uh, as you look at this, Moses is complaining, and Israelites are complaining, but what's the difference? The difference here is the, the object of the complaints. Moses had faith that he could complain to God, and he was complaining to God out of faith, really. It was a faithful experience, uh, expression that he used. Uh, but the people were using their complaints just to gender ill will and false, uh, you know, false security in the whole camp. Psalm 142.2, the psalmist says, I pour out my complaint before him. I declare my trouble before him. Well, God wants us to, to cast our cares on him, as Peter tells us. Uh, the problem with prayers in the desert is it feels like God's not hearing. And, and here are several of the, uh, the passages, again, that we just don't have time uh, to wait. Micah 7, 7, I will cite that one. I will watch expectantly for the Lord. I will wait for the God of my salvation. My God will hear me, Micah says. In Psalm 37, 5, a favorite of many of us. Commit your way to the Lord. Trust also in him, and he will do it. So, <clears throat> survival number two, you find help. Number three, you find strength. And this is the point where it comes down to the congregation and helps us. After the meltdown that Moses had, and, and Moses had opened his heart and, and expressed his, his true feelings to God, God helped him. God didn't turn away from him. God didn't see him as, as unfit. Many individuals will not be as honest with God as they ought to because they think God will turn away from them, and there's nothing in the Scripture that indicates that. In fact, the Bible says you can be too good for God. Have you ever thought about that? Think about the Pharisee and the public. You can be too good for God. You can never be too bad for God. Think about that. It's very significant. All right, so there's help from God. God provided, and then there's help from others because God said, Moses, you get 70 others to help you, and, and he did that, and, and there you had Moses that was able to delegate some authority and responsibility, and to us today, that help is found in the local congregation. 
You can't be a lone ranger. You can't do it all by yourself. There's not anything wrong with telling the congregation you need help. You need to, to be encouraged. I like 1 Thessalonians 5.14. Admonish the unruly, encourage the faint-hearted, help the weak, be patient toward everyone. That's what we need to do. And that's what will help us as we're in the wilderness. And in 1 Corinthians 16, uh, 15 there, it's an interesting thing about the household of Stephanus. There the Bible says that they have devoted themselves. That's what the New American Standard says. But literally, the word devote there refers to an addiction. It, it refers to a total uh, serving of something. And so these, and, and one, of the, uh, one of the translations render it in that way, they have addicted themselves uh, to the brethren uh, for the ministry of the saints. What a wonderful encouragement that is. Well, the purpose of the wilderness, the purpose of the wilderness wandering, uh, there are a number of those. First of all, to unify God's people. As we're marching on through the wilderness as a congregation and we're pulling together, it unites us. It gives us strength. It brings us into a solid unit. It melds us in our hopes and our fears. And our, Like, blessed be the tie. What a wonderful hymn. And yet that is where we are in the wilderness. God is bringing us uh, individuals to help. They need help. And then they will reciprocate to us. They will help us as well. In the wilderness, your faith is going to grow. And your understanding of the Lord God Almighty is going to grow. And most importantly, in the wilderness, you're going to experience the patience of God. Those that are older, I think, can appreciate the patience of God more than those that are younger. Not that the younger don't understand God or don't believe God. It's just through the years, those that are older have experienced the wandering in the wilderness and the trials and the sorrows, and they've seen the patience of God that comes from it. The wilderness is a time to prepare. We're not there yet. We're not crossing the Jordan yet. Some of our brethren have. They've gone on to their reward, and we thank God for them and for their, but we're still marching we're still in the wilderness, and so we need the wilderness to prepare us for the next challenge. The Bible says God's not going to tempt you more than which you're able to bear, but you're going to grow in your faith. And so as you're going on your wilderness wondering, I believe that you're going to face greater trials and greater challenges in the future than you have in the past because your faith has grown and, and that will help your faith to grow even more. Be an active part of the congregation. Again, last night we said the Bible said Jonah didn't want his place with God. Everybody has a place. You have a place. Find that place that God says, 1 Corinthians 12, 18. You're a part of the congregation. What are you a part doing? Every part is to function, Ephesians 4 says, 16 building up of the church. Well, be of an active part. Study the scriptures. The wilderness is a place where, God's meet, where God meets people. Uh, through the trials, it's a place where we walk with God. It's a place where slavery is banished. It's a place that we can know God in a deeper way. The wilderness will help us to 
grow in our faith, it will help us to overcome our sins, and it will help us to develop oneness in the body of Christ as well. The wilderness is a very busy time for us. We're marching, we're going, but remember that the devil is also busy in the wilderness. As Moses was in the wilderness, uh, the lesson that we find here is that instead of feeling deserted and vulnerable, you can actually welcome the wilderness. You can gain strength to endure the wilderness only through a confident and obedient faith. Time is up, but here are three, uh, four scriptures that will help you to uh, see the urgency of using the Bible to build your faith. And the last one, Daniel 3.17, introduces us to the, uh, the lesson tomorrow night. There the three Hebrews said, If be so, our God, whom we serve, is able to deliver us from the furnace of blazing fire, and he will deliver us out of your hand, O king. Be back tomorrow night, and we'll talk about the God who provides for us when we're facing those trials in the wilderness wanderings. A lot more can be said, but I hope that these thoughts have uh, stimulated your thoughts, and you'll go home and you'll think about those. And uh, the psalmist says, Psalms 1, we meditate upon the Word of God day and night. And the word meditate there literally means ruminate, which means chew in the cud. So you take the Scriptures and you chew on it and you chew on it and you chew on it and you get all the nutrients out of it. Well, look at the wilderness wanderings and chew on that and you'll be blessed for it. I think we've got refreshments again in the back. Help yourself. Thank you for being here and hope you'll be back tomorrow night.